Good morning. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 41, verses 1 through 16. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream this same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams. And he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had been shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Well, good morning. Everyone suffers. We don't get to avoid it. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an unbeliever, whether you're a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or Buddhist or whatever, suffering is part of living in a fallen world. We don't get a choice. But we do get to choose how we respond to the suffering. That's the key. And I'm struck by how some respond in a way in which the suffering seems to derail us. It knocks us off track. So we're stuck on a sidetrack and the frustration and the anger about it and the anger towards God at allowing this to happen and the struggles and the difficulty of it keep us trapped in this place we can't seem to get beyond. People who respond that way may still go to church. They may even be involved in ministry somehow. But I've watched... Friends end up derailed and not seem to be able to get beyond it. Others who suffer just as much, maybe more, who go through deep woundedness and deep pain, seem to respond differently. They're able to respond in a way where their faith in God gets strengthened, where rather than in anger they turn away from Him, and say, I'll never trust you again, they're able to say, God, you are a God of love and you work all things together for good and my faith is even deepened through my trials. 
they're able to use the suffering to catapult them on in life to a greater depth of character, a greater depth of ministry in other people's lives. So what's the difference? Why one and not the other? And how, how can suffering truly become a blessing for us? Suffering's painful, none of us like it, but how can it become a blessing for us? Well, in this chapter, chapter 41, we look at the life of Joseph and he has been through some tremendous suffering. Rejected by his brothers, they wanted to kill him. Instead, they sold him as a slave. So for 13 years, he's been a slave, and then he gets unjustly condemned, thrown in prison, and he's, now he's been in prison, chained in a prison. 13 years of struggle. But in this chapter, he goes from being a prisoner in a dungeon to being a person of incredible influence, the second most powerful person on the face of the earth, second only to Pharaoh himself. What happened? How can we make the same step from suffering to being a person of influence through the suffering? How did he get there? Well, we want to look at this chapter together and see the process that brought him there and hopefully it will encourage us to walk the same road. So let's pray and then we'll dig into this passage together. Lord, thank you for... Joseph, we can relate to him. And Lord, we all suffer. It may look different for every one of us here. It might be family issues or health issues or spiritual struggles or sin issues or whatever it might be. Help us see, Lord, how you can turn it into a blessing so that we might trust you through it even more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Larry read, this chapter begins with a dream. Two dreams, actually. Pharaoh himself dreams, and in these dreams, there's the fat cows, and then the skinny cows eat them up, and then the fat grain, and the skinny grain eats it up, and so you've got this whole scenario of dreams. And Pharaoh's upset about the dreams, and he wants an answer, so he calls together all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. This was, again, a brilliant group of people, and they could not interpret the dream. Now let me say a little bit about dreams in Egypt because we need to understand kind of the context here of what's going on. You see, for them, they felt like dreams were the way to make connections with the gods. In that dream state, God could speak to you. Of course, they believed in many gods, so the gods could speak to you. And so they tried to find ways to somehow get spiritual insight because they so longed to enter into that spiritual reality they knew was out there, but they couldn't quite connect with it. So what you see here is a picture of a dream that a dream room actually in one of the pagan temples they had. And whoever it is, Pharaoh or some other person would come into the dream room and they would go to sleep hoping to hear from the gods. And in this picture, that's an actual picture, Egyptian picture, these on the end are considered gods and these are spiritual ones, these birds here that are ministering to the person who's sleeping and then this is the dream which maybe one of you can read that but I can't. <laughs> but you get a sense here of 
how thirsty they were to somehow enter into the spiritual realm. And so they had all kinds of experts that were trained in dream analysis. So once they had a dream, they would come to these experts and they would say, hey, help us understand this dream. And they had a dream book. Let me just read an excerpt from it. The dream book from this period in Egypt um, is in the British Museum. And the meaning of dreams is the subject that fascinated the ancient Egyptians, they say. On each page of this dream book, it's a papyrus, is a vertical column of signs. And it begins, if a man sees himself in a dream, and then each analysis says, okay, then this will happen and this will happen. This is good, this is bad. And it explains all that. For example, if a man sees himself in a dream looking out of a window, good. It means the hearing of his cry. Or if a man sees himself in a dream with his bed catching fire, bad. (laughs) It means driving away his wife. Or don't smoke in bed or something. I don't know what it means, but... (laughs) See, they tried to figure out, oh, what is God telling us? And so if you have this in your dream, then this is what it means. But Pharaoh's confused because he's not in the dream and his dreams don't fit the dream book. And they're thinking, "What, what does this mean? And so all his magicians and his wise men cannot figure out what the dream means. They're lost and confused. Now, let me say a little bit about dreams. Um, God in the Bible does certainly speak through dreams like he does here with Pharaoh, like he did with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, like with Joseph in the New Testament when he spoke to him in a dream about going ahead and marrying Mary. What about today, though? Does God still speak through dreams? Well, I think he does sometimes. Um, He does sometimes, but today we have God's revelation. We have the life of Christ who came and the written word about him and the written word of God's truth. We have the revelation, folks. We don't need some special sort of insight that people are clamoring for today. If I could just figure out how to connect with God, maybe he'd tell me how I should live my life, etc., etc. People are so thirsty to hear from God. And you know what? We have the revelation from God directly through Jesus, through His Word and through the Spirit who teaches us and leads us into all truth. So we don't need any kind of secret knowledge, but here's the amazing thing. God still speaks through dreams today. I think He sometimes does with us, perhaps. Maybe you've experienced that. But a primary way He speaks through dreams is in the Muslim world today among people who have no access to God's revelation. And it's amazing the stories. If you read what God's doing in the Muslim world, in these villages where they have no access to a missionary or the the scriptures or whatever, God speaks to people in dreams and tells them Jesus is the way and you need to trust Him. You maybe have heard about a whole village in Pakistan, tribal village where there had been no testimony of Jesus there. And the whole village had dreams about Jesus and about a man coming and telling them about Jesus. And the missionary came and he was ready, you know, I'm going to come do my work here. And the people ran to him and said, are you the one who's here to tell us about Jesus? And he's kind of like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) 
You see, God's at work and he can use dreams, but it's not the norm. We have the revelation from God. So in verse 8, you see that meaning of in the morning, his spirit, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told him his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. That's just an encouragement for us. The wisdom of the world is always limited, folks. Don't be fooled into thinking the world really knows and understands reality. Now, science, psychology, all the other ologies out there, (laughs) they can observe certain things and But when they try to make conclusions about that or really understand it at a deeper level, they get confused and lost because they're just observing a little bit of reality. All the rest has to be filled in by God's revelation. Pharaoh understands that at this point. I I need a revelation from God. (laughs) My experts don't have it. And we need to understand that too and trust that God's word is revelation is what people need today because they are lost and confused Without it, God must speak into our confusion. Well, as the story goes on, the cupbearer says, Oh, you had a dream? I totally forgot about this guy in prison. He interpreted my dream and the baker's dream. And you know what? What he said, everything came true. Well, Pharaoh's like, well, let's get this guy. And and literally, it says he, he hurried to get him. He made him run all the way to Pharaoh. He was so excited because he was so thirsty for truth. People are thirsty for truth out there. They need to hear the truth about Jesus and God's love and forgiveness in Christ. God's in control and he's been preparing Joseph for this day in 13 years of suffering. And then in verse 15 and 16, these are really key verses in the whole chapter. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Pharaoh says, and again, think about standing before the president of the United States or whomever. He's standing before Pharaoh. He's just come out of prison. And Pharaoh says, I hear you have what it takes. I hear you the man. (laughs) You can interpret this dream for me. Notice Joseph's response, amazing response, I think. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It's not in me, not me. I don't have what it takes. Literally, it's apart from me, without me. God doesn't need me. But God will interpret the dreams for you. I want to plant there a little bit because I think it's so significant that we understand what's gone on for Joseph here. Think about what Joseph was like 13 years before. That arrogant 17-year-old. Remember him when his father was favoring him and gave him a coat of many colors so he'd stand out from all his brothers, even though he was the 11th of 12 And he was a tattletale to his brothers. He was arrogant. He flaunted the fact he had this fancy robe. He wore it when he traveled a long ways to go see his brothers. And they were just fed up with this arrogant little brat. 
And they wanted to kill him. Instead, they sold him as a slave so they could get a little money out of it. But, I mean, this guy was not fun to be around. He was spoiled. And look where he's gotten in 13 years. It's not about him anymore. It's about God. 13 years of suffering have brought him to a place of learning what the New Testament calls the New Covenant. It's what every, God wants every Christian to learn, that the way we are to live the Christian life is, it's not me, it's you, God. It's your life in me. It's not what I do for you, it's what you are doing through me as I learn to depend on your spirit. And Joseph has, has learned that new covenant that's talked about in the New Testament. Paul talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, Not that we're adequate or sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy or sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient or adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If we try to live by rules and regulations, that's the letter, it kills. But Paul says, no, how we're to live is depending on his adequacy, not our own. What's amazing, and that's what God wants every one of us to learn, what's amazing is that Joseph, 3,500 years ago, (laughs) grasped that. He grasped that God wanted to live his life through him. Not me, but you. Nothing from me, everything from you. Joseph gets it. So here's the question. How did Joseph learn that? How did he change so much? How did his character develop from being that arrogant brat to this place of understanding God in me? Well, the answer is simple. Suffering. (laughs) Suffering. But it's how he responded to the suffering. I'd use one word to describe it, humility. Peter wrote a book, 1 Peter, about suffering. And kind of at the climax of the book, towards the end, in chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, Therefore, in light of all I've been saying, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. We all experience God's mighty hand in the different things we face in life, suffering and struggles and trials, and we feel God's hand pressing on us. And we have a choice. Will we humble ourselves under that hand? Lord, you are God, and I submit to you, and I will continue obeying you and walking with you. Or do we, in our own pride, say, no, I will not give in to you and your mighty hand. Peter promises that if we humble ourselves under his mighty hand, in due time, he will exalt us. The difference for many of us is that choice. Do we submit or not? Suffering always confronts us with our own arrogant self-dependence. It always does. The question is, do we humble ourselves under his hand or do we... Demand that God treat us well and battle it when life does not go our way. 
humility. But you need to understand humility. We, we sometimes have a wrong sense of humility and what it is. We think humility is, I'm just a nobody. I can't do anything. I'm so humble. Just because I'm, yeah, you're so much better than me. You know, we kind of have this idea, sort of this worm theology sort of humility. I don't see that in Joseph. I think he's an incredibly humble man, but his humility is nothing from me. I can't produce anything of real life, but God can. Real humility is no confidence in me, but all kinds of confidence in him. So we live a life of confidence. Again, not in me, but in him. That is true humility. True humility is what Jesus showed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, I don't want to go through this suffering. If there's any way you can take this cup from me, Father, take it. (laughs) I don't like to hurt. But not my will, but yours be done. I'm trusting you, Father, with my life. Will we let God be God? Or demand that he be what we want him to be, our vending machine, where if I just do the right things, put in the right coins, then we get out what we want. That's the choice. But if you want your suffering to turn into a blessing, it means humbling yourself under God's mighty hand so that he can shape your character, change you, and teach you what it means to depend on him rather than yourself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Screwtape Letters, says something about this that really struck me. If you haven't read Screwtape Letters, it's an excellent book, that is written from the perspective of a chief devil. And he's writing to his subordinate devil about how to destroy the lives of Christians. So he says this, You must have often wondered why the enemy, who is God to them, is their enemy, does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives, he leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. Our cause, the devil's cause, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. When we do that, when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, God does a mighty work. So it begins there, but if then what we see in Joseph is he not only humbles himself, but... He uses his giftedness to serve others in the suffering and beyond it. He uses his giftedness to bless others. You see, suffering tempts us to withdraw into ourselves, doesn't it? 
It hurts. I don't like it. So I'm going to hide out. I'm going to try to protect myself. And we withdraw into our shell and just think, I don't want to hurt anymore. It tempts us to be self-centered, to be hurt, to live in our woundedness. But Joseph doesn't do that. In fact, even in prison, he just serves other people. He loves them well. He reaches out to the cupbearer and baker, etc., with sharing God's love. And God uses him in a mighty way and ultimately to become the second most powerful person in the kingdom of Egypt. Well, as the story goes on, we see that developing. We see how Pharaoh comes to him and says, okay, here's my dream, my two dreams. And Joseph, in his wisdom, says, okay, yeah, here's the interpretation of it. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he describes how the seven cows are seven years, good years and bad years. And both the dreams teach the same thing. Verse 32, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, if it, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. But now notice how God has given Joseph incredibly wis- incredible wisdom as he goes on. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to support overseers, to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Let them gather food, a fifth of the food. And so he gives a suggestion to Pharaoh because he has God's wisdom. In walking with God, he has gained wisdom that affects all of life, far wiser than anyone could get apart from God. That's why he is so wise. It's just an encouragement to us, folks. I just want to remind you that Are you struggling in areas in your life where you need wisdom? To be a parent. To love your parents who are aging. To respond well at work. To deal with a difficult neighbor, etc. On and on. To deal with your own sin struggles, etc. Do you need wisdom? We all do. We all do. And I think it's tempting for us to look for some worldly expert or the latest seminar or the latest book. And, you know, those can be helpful sometimes. But Joseph, I think, is an example to us that real wisdom comes from being close to God. Letting suffering drive us to him in a way that we depend on him and know him more intimately because he is the source of all true wisdom. That's why he is so wise. And Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, is so impressed by Joseph's wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 38 and 39. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit, literally, in whom is the spirit of God? Here's a pagan king and he's going, Man, I haven't seen anything like this. I've got all these wise guys. They aren't so wise. I've got magicians. I've got all kinds of people. But here's a guy who sees reality as it really is. He's so impressed, he says, man, this is the one we want. There's something about him. The Spirit of God is in him. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 39, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. 
He even recognizes it's from God. It's not from Joseph. But hey, God's speaking to you, buddy. (laughs) I need you in my court. You're the one I need. Isn't it amazing the way God has worked in Joseph's life from that arrogant brat to a person of such wisdom, such humility, such spiritual insight, such intimacy with God? Again, how did that happen? It was all forged in those years of suffering. Do you understand whatever suffering you're going through now or have gone through or will go through may be the most important thing that happens in your life. It's the very tool that God will use to shape you into someone who can have influence in your world. Now, we may not be second to president to the president of the United States, But God wants us to have influence in our world right where we are. And that comes as we learn to humble ourselves before him and then serve him, use our giftedness to serve him and love others wherever we are. Well, Pharaoh is so impressed that he he trusts him. I mean... He's saying, look, this is the next 14 years. This is what's going to happen. And Pharaoh says, wow, well, I better get prepared. So he appoints him. He blesses him. He honors him. He empowers him. You are going to be second in command. And he gives him his signet ring, which says, everything that you want to put down as a command from you, you mark it as from me. Because I'm trusting your leadership here. He gives him a robe. He gives him a chariot. I mean, you've got to read this. It's pretty amazing. All the things that Pharaoh does to honor him and bless him. And it's, again, a reminder to us that if we want to be successful in life, it doesn't mean everything will go well, obviously. But if we want to be successful in the midst of a difficult life, whether it's in our parenting or jobs or whatever, it comes from humbling ourselves under him in the suffering, and letting him do his work to shape us into what he wants us to be. So we see a process here for Joseph, a process of humbling himself, a process of using what he has to serve and bless others. And then the final step we see, I see in this passage at the end, is he lives a life of gratitude towards God. Just a quick aside. Now, Some of you may have heard, well, yeah, the story of Joseph is great, but if he was really that powerful in the Egyptian kingdom, wouldn't there be some archaeological evidence of this? Did Joseph really have that kind of influence? And archaeologists have wondered, how come we don't have evidence of Joseph? Well, there is evidence. This came out of the Jerusalem Post recently. And it says this, archaeologists have discovered ancient Egyptian coins from this period, biblical period of Joseph, bearing the name and image of the biblical Joseph. Cairo's Al-Aram newspaper recently reported, excerpts uh, provided by memory, whatever that is, show that the coins were discovered among a multitude of unsorted artifacts stored at the Museum of Egypt. They found a whole bunch of coins, and they not only have Joseph's image on them, but his name written on them from this period. You see, Joseph was real. (laughs) And we see here now, as we've been talking about suffering, 
Some of you out there may be saying, well, that's all very interesting, but, you know, my life's going pretty well. It's, I'm really doing well right now. And, you know, my life's working out. Some of us have been very successful in life and you feel like you haven't suffered a whole lot. What does it look like to trust God then? That can be hard. Sometimes it's easier to trust God through the hard times than it is through the easy times, right? Because we get self-dependent. We don't need him anymore. We can handle life on our own when we're doing well. Well, we can learn from Joseph here in that as well, because now his life's going well. I mean, he's got power. He's got incredible influence. He's got money. As we see in this chapter, the Pharaoh gives him all kinds of power, all kinds of wealth, gives him a powerful wife to marry, an Egyptian wife, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, which was a very powerful position. He's only 30 years old and he's got all this influence. He's even given an Egyptian name by Pharaoh. So all of this has happened. Wouldn't it be easy for him to just forget God? Has he forgotten God? Well, you know what? He hasn't. And we see that in verse 50 through 52. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Right in the midst of all this, when Joseph could just say, to heck with my past, to heck with God, I got it made. He has two children. He gives them both Hebrew names because he still worships the Hebrew God. And both names are a constant reminder of how God has blessed him. They're a reminder of God's goodness to him in the midst of his suffering. How God has blessed him right in the land of his affliction. God has made me forget the pain of the past. God has blessed me and given me fruitfulness right where I am. It's all from him. It's not from me. He's still living in that new covenant, isn't he? So that every time he called his kids' names, it would be a reminder to him of God's love and goodness. It would be a response of gratitude. So he'd say, Manasseh, stop beating on your brother Ephraim. It would be a reminder to him, oh yeah, God is the one who blessed me. You see, that's a key to turning even the trial of prosperity, because prosperity is a trial. (laughs) It's hard to trust God when you're doing well. The key to turning the trial of prosperity into a blessing of God is having this attitude of gratitude. It's all from you, God. It's not from me. It's all from you. In this chapter, Joseph goes from being a prisoner chained in a dungeon to being second command, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. How did he get there? By humbling himself under God's mighty hand, looking for ways to serve God right where he was, even in the suffering. 
and developing this attitude of gratitude that says, Lord, it's all from you. Learning to walk in that dependence on God through the suffering that carried over into prosperity. So where are you today? Suffering? Struggling to trust God? Let me encourage you that the key is that passage in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Lord, this is from you. Help me to trust you, to give it to you, to not shake my fist at you, but to submit to you as Lord, knowing you're a God of love. You've proven it on the cross, even though it doesn't feel like love. And help me to obey and trust you right in the midst of where I am. That's the secret of turning suffering into blessing. I want to close with words from a song by John Fisher. One verse says this, The hard rain, it falls, the same on us all. And how you do depends on your point of view. One man will curse, while another says it could be worse, because he lifts his cup, whether full or empty, to you. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to be like Joseph. Whether we're experiencing the trial of suffering or the trial of prosperity, to depend on you and your life, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and trust you to exalt us in the proper time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.